Thank you again, Grace. We are blessed once again. Tuesday night, we're going to be blessed again. Uh, I've heard lectures that are normally boring and put you to sleep, but this is a lecture recital. Grace has brought a few of her friends with her. <laughs> I was there Saturday. I got a preview Saturday morning. And I think you don't, you don't want to miss this one. There's a big choir going to be up here. Young people, it could be fantastic. Now, scripture this morning on page 7. Mark 10, 13 through 16. People were bringing children to Jesus so that he would bless them. But the disciples scolded them. When Jesus saw this, he grew angry and said to them, Allow the children to come to me. Don't forbid them, because God's kingdom belongs to people like these children. I assure you that whoever doesn't welcome God, God's kingdom like a child will never enter it. Then he hugged the children and blessed them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thank you, God. Thank you, Dennis. So as I said at the outset of worship, we're starting a new series today. It's called Follow Me, and we're talking about five key relationships that each of us should have in our lives as followers of Christ. And one of those is, is the dynamic of what it means for us to have a social relationship with the world around us as a follower of Christ. We're going to be talking about these kinds of key things and how we are supposed to follow Jesus into the world in a way that brings the love of Christ to the world. Now, you think about following. Following has an aspect to it. Following is about proximity, right? Proximity to the object that is in front of you. Sometimes following close is a good thing. Sometimes following too close is a bad thing. Sometimes following from a distance is a really good thing. And sometimes following from a distance is a bad thing. And Jesus said to his disciples, come and follow me. Do you think that was about proximity that's far away or proximity that was close? I would say to you that it was about intimacy. It was an invitation to a proximity that would develop an intimacy between Christ and his followers in such a way that they could learn and become Jesus in the world. A group of us on Wednesdays after the pastor's Bible study, we go out to dinner and we sit around and we fellowship a little bit. We eat, we covenant with one another. And on Wednesday evening, one of our group asked me if I had been following the NBA conference finals. Now, I have to admit, I have not been following them at all. Now, when I was in my teens and my 20s, I played basketball a lot. I could actually say that it was kind of like my opioid. Right? I was kind of addicted to basketball when I was a younger person. My knees remind me constantly how much I played basketball when I was younger. Right, And I used to watch it a lot as well. I'd probably watched way too much basketball. It was something that I was thoroughly invested in. I followed it closely. Today, I could not tell you who's in the NBA conference finals at all. I I don't follow basketball all that much anymore. I have a more distant kind of relationship with basketball than what I did at a previous time in my life. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you have been following the Royals lately? How many of you have gone to every single game or watched every single game since the beginning of the season? Any, uh, any good, faithful fans here, right? Uh, how much of your interest has waned since 2014, 2015? 
Same for me, right? I don't watch baseball quite as much as I used to when the Royals were on their run to the World Series. I don't have as much time to invest in it. My relationship with it is is quite as close as it used to be. And yeah, I've become, like most of us, a Fairweather fan, and I think that's perfectly fine. How about you? You okay with that? All right, good. An interesting thing about following sports, though, is is whether you follow them close or afar. Take any other subject, whether you follow it close or far, your proximity really doesn't matter much to your life. It has no significant impact on the things that you really need in your life, those basic kinds of needs like safety and security. Whether you follow baseball or basketball or anything else doesn't really impinge upon those two things where you find safety, and where you find security. Now think about proximity when it comes to driving a car, right? Now I'm going to admit, confession is good for the soul, so they say, I'm going to admit that Mondays through Thursdays, I usually find myself coming towards the church, but I make a little detour, and I go west over here to Prairie Village, and I stop off at the Starbucks to get my morning mobile order. And I do that pretty consistently Monday through Thursday. On Thursday, I was driving across 69th Street, headed back towards the church, right? And 69th Street crosses the top of or the north side of Indian Hills Golf Course. Anybody know the speed limit through there by any chance? It is 25 miles per hour through there. And Mission Hills has a tendency to watch that road a little bit, right? So I have learned to behave myself on that road. No, I have never gotten a ticket on that road. I'll just confess that. But I do pay attention because I've seen enough police officers through there. Well, there was a woman behind me driving that was not very excited about the fact that I was only doing 27 miles an hour. So for about a mile stretch of the road, I saw arms flailing all over the place, a head that was just going up and down, a mouth that was moving quite a bit at me. She was encouraging me to move along a little bit faster, and I just kept doing the speed that I knew would keep me from getting in more trouble with the police, right? So we get to Belender and stop at the stop sign, and I just kind of peek into my rearview mirror, and I see this. An arm go like this, and one go like this. And then she puts her hands back on the steering wheel. I go through the stop sign straight. She quickly makes a right on Belender. Proximity. How many of you have ever learned the, list, uh, the lesson of being too close to someone else in a vehicle? And it ended in a car accident. Anybody? I have, right? I think several of us have. December of 1979, I was involved in a rear-end collision with a Ford station wagon. That thing didn't have a single bit of damage to it, right? My car, I had a big Buick Centurion, 1972 Buick Centurion. I think the hood wound up standing about that tall off the ground by the time it was all said and done. We were going across 135th and row, uh, in between Row and Knoll. Now, how many of you remember what was out there in those days? Zero, right? Pasture land, two-lane high road going one direction and the other direction. And I lost a car. Proximity. Following too close. Following too close can be dangerous in certain circumstances. But when it comes to following Christ, proximity is the best 
thing for us. Closeness, intimacy is the best thing for us. Jesus invites us to come and follow him closely. And in doing so, emulate to the world the the proximity and the closeness that we have as the body of Christ. Now, when you read this story of Jesus and the small children and the disciples, what do you get out of this story? Do you get that the disciples don't like kids? Is that one way of reading it? Do you think the disciples believe that the kids should be seen but not heard? Ever been around a crowd like that? Or do you suppose the disciples thought that Jesus had more important things to do with his time than to mess around with a bunch of kids? What do you see the disciples saying to Jesus? And what do you see Jesus doing? Now think about this. Culturally, the disciples acted towards the children in what would have been a socially normative way for his day. Children were on the bottom rung of the social and the familial ladder. They were unimportant because they were mere consumers of space and resources. They were not at an age where most of them could have contributed to the economic well-being of the home. And so in first century culture, they were a class of people who had no legal protections or rights. Out of sight, out of mind was where children belonged in that day. There was a distance that should have been kept between the children and the adults. And yet Jesus does something different with them. Jesus doesn't see himself wasting time with children. He doesn't comport to the societal norms, but rather institutes a different way in which we interact with one another. The parents thought that evidently it was okay because they brought their children to Jesus in that moment. They thought he might have a special touch, might have magical power, might be able to convey upon them some sort of protection. But Jesus in that moment communicates to these small children and says them some very simple things. You're a child of God, a person of sacred worth, created in the image of God, and the love of God is for you as well as any adult. Proximity. Jesus brought them close to be intimate with the small children in a way in which he could pass on to them a blessing, a word of touch and healing, a word of hope for what is to come in their lives. You think about that in that moment. Jesus was inviting his disciples to follow him in a way that did not make sense to them. It was countercultural to the way in which they were brought up, the world in which they knew. Jesus said to them, it's time for all of us to value those that society does not value. It's time for us to be in close proximity to those people instinctively stay away from. It's time for us to touch those no one else would touch. It's time for us to make the love of God known in a social way that's going to break down the barriers that have been put in place, especially the ones that excludes small children. The touch of Jesus was subversive. It was subversive to the social norms of his day. And I think that's maybe one of the hardest things about following Jesus today is is that Jesus invites us to be so close to him that we become subversive in the ways in which we operate in the world around us. We become countercultural, anti-normative in some of the ways in which we live. Now you think about the dominant culture and how it teaches us to interact with one another. We, we come up to one another and we look at each other and there's questions that kind of go on in our head as we address one another. Are they beautiful or not? 
Are they nice or not? Are they rich or not? Are they progressive enough or not? Or are they conservative enough or not? Are they religious or not? We ask ourselves all these questions. And then we determine the proximity at which we're going to confront somebody. In which we're going to engage with somebody. Depending upon how you answer those questions. Might determine your social engagement with someone else. It's the way of the culture around us. When we listened to Walter Brueggemann a few weeks back when he was speaking here in town, Walter Brueggemann said among many delightful things and insightful things, he said this, he said, Jesus invites us to a subversion of reality. Jesus invites us to a substitute version of the reality around us. Isn't that how Jesus invites us to engage the broader society in a way that's going to communicate the very things that Christ communed to these small children, created in the image of God, all of us are. All of us are of sacred worth. All of us are loved by God, deserve to be treated as if we are a child of God. To subvert, in many ways, our us-versus-them kind of culture that we all inhabit. But how do we do that? How do we engage in that kind of way? Now that I've finished my doctorate's degree, someone asked me if I'm going to have time to read some of the books that I want to read. The answer would be, I could. Except for I signed up for a a device called Leader's Box, and every single month they send me two recommended books to read, so I guess I'm still reading somebody else's reading list right now. But one of the books that I received recently is one by Daniel Coyle, and it's titled The Culture Code. It's a book that discusses how group culture is one of the most powerful forces on the planet and how it drives success within group culture. So one of the factors that plays a key role in this is what we call belonging cues. They're the nonverbal answers to the questions that people have when they come in. They are the signals that we send to others. They answer basic human questions like, am I safe here? Do I see a future with the people that I'm engaging? Are there dangers that are lurking here? So when people come through our doors here at St. John's, those kind of subconscious questions are going on in their heads. And they're looking for the answers, not in the words. They're looking for the answers in our behaviors, our nonverbal cues, how we address them. Right? Now when you guys came in this morning, those of you that I had a chance to greet, I gave you a test today. And you didn't even know it. How many of you signed up to come to church this morning to take a test? Any of you? No? No? But I gave you a test. As I shook your hand this morning and greeted you, I smiled at you intentionally. Because studies show that it is nearly impossible for us on first contact with another person to not mirror or emulate the nonverbal cues that we are receiving from them. So when someone sticks their hand out to shake your hand and they smile at you, you have a natural tendency to smile back at them. If you walk up to someone who is closed off and have their arms crossed, you will proceed with caution as you come to them, right? Body posture, social cues that we give to everyone, right? The church is supposed to be the place that gives a social cue to the world that the love-giving presence of God is here and available for you and we're going to share it and whenever you cross the thresholds of our door. Intimacy is what we are about. 
But intimacy isn't just about nonverbal cues. It's about the verbal as well. It's what we say to one another. It's if we're willing to engage and cross that line to create intimacy with each other. For those of us that are kind of historical readers, you might remember that in World War I, there's a, a story called the Christmas Truce, right, that happened between the Germans and the Allies. It's the winter of 1914 in the trenches of Flanders. It said it was not actually an ideal place to spend the holidays. The trenches, if you didn't know this, were actually below sea level. And so when water would get into those trenches, the mud would become like grease. It was like walking on Greece through the, the trenches. And actually, it became a great place to breed awful nasty things like rats and fleas and disease and other kinds of pestilence. It was not a place any human wanted to be. The trenches would be sometimes a couple of football fields apart. They would weave in and out. They might be a couple hundred feet apart from one another. At one point, they say that it got down to seven meters between the opposing observation points at what was called Vimy Ridge. It was a nasty, horrible place to be. And you put on top of that the acrimony. The acrimony between Western European countries and Germany and how they continue to be able to thrive off of that to produce war amongst themselves. The English and the French newspapers were evidently noted for being really fervent in purporting myths about the German people. They would write about them being barbarians. One of the news reports said that they melted down innocent human beings to make soap. The Germans taught their, school teacher, uh, taught their school children how to recite a famous poem that they had that was called the Hymn of Hate. It went like this. You we will hate with a lasting hate. You we will never forego our hate. Hate by water, hate by land, hate of the head and hate of the hand. Hate of the hammer and hate of the crown, hate of 70 millions choking down. We love as one, we hate as one, we have one foe and one alone, England. They taught their children that hymn. One Christmas Eve, outside of a town of La Chapelle, a German lieutenant did the unthinkable. He climbed out of his trench. Sniper warfare in World War I was one of the greatest things that they, they, they found to be a tool that they used. And this German lieutenant risked getting out of a trench to engage the enemy for a moment of truce. Now here's my point. It, it takes one brave person who's willing to get out of the norms to subvert the culture, the culture of whatever it is, war, hate, violence, whatever it is, to be able to do something different, make something different happen in our world. It takes us engaging others, right? If we want to engage the world in a way that I think invites others to be disciples, and I think in many ways we might be folks that need to get a new game face. You ever heard that term, to get a game face? Michael, you know that term, right? Get a game face, right? If it's true that our demeanor and our words and in our actions speak of who God is, then maybe we need to develop a demeanor of the Spirit that communicates to everyone around us who we believe God is and who God is calling all of us to be. To communicate to everyone that they are a child of God, that is loved by God and of equal worth, that none of us are unequal 
when it comes to the eyes of God. So maybe we need to stop addressing hate speech with hate speech. We need to address it with the words and the love of God. Stop addressing violence with more violence. We need to figure out how to share God's love with one another. See the creation of God in each other. Stop excluding each other and instead find that divine spark. Because Jesus said to his disciples, come and follow me. It's a place that's supposed to be intimate. Our proximity is supposed to be close to Him in a way that it influences who we are, not only in our intimate relationships of our family and our church, but in the world beyond. It's an invitation that's still prevalent for us today. And so here's what I hope you take away from today. A couple of things just simply to remember. To be reminded that relationship is about proximity. The further that we go... the into this, the, the more that we can develop a relationship, the further we are apart, the harder it is to develop a relationship. And Jesus invited his disciples to be close, to be intimate with him, to learn in his way in which he interacted in his society, in his time. And Jesus invites us today to follow him, to come, to be subversive in how we deal, not only as a community, but in the world beyond as well. So ask yourself what's required of you this day. When you go forth from this moment, what might God be asking you to do? What might God be asking you to be in the world? And part of it might be that we need to ask ourselves how we really see others around us. Do we see others as ones who are created in the image of God, of sacred worth to God, and worthy of God's love? Or do we see them as difficult, ignorant, wrong, not worth our time? We have to worry. We have to think about how we see others. And you have to think about this. Would Jesus make those kinds of distinctions? Would Jesus include us in his circle of friends? Let's pray. Merciful God, in our time together, we ask, O God, that you might bless us, but, O God, that you might help us to also hear and to respond. And to know that your calling of intimacy is important to us as it was to your disciples. That you want us to draw close and near and to learn. To see how it is that you interacted. Even with those that were the most vulnerable of your day. For us to learn what it means for us to be a Christian community. Not only one that finds safety and security here amongst ourselves, Lord, that's willing to go, willing to cross that danger zone, willing to cross over the social lines so that we might take your love and your grace to the world. We ask that you teach us, mold us, help us to become like the sun, so that your light and your love might shine in this world. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.